heroic, right? No, no, no. It's supposed to be heroic. So stoic, they, stoic. No, I, well, uh, heroic. All right, give it, hold give on. It. All right, all right, some gusto. A little more. Uh, just a little. Just t- you know, turn it up a little bit. <laughs> okay, you ready? We're still going, right? Yeah. I, I, I kind of wasted my time at school, but I wasted my time very, very fruitfully. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stopped making myths turned to issuing proclamations and commandments. Your guides for this journey, my co-host and National Book Award winner, Phil Cly. Our producer, the talented musician and crack recording engineer, Adam Kamara. And me, Donnie Baseball, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. So Jake and I have been arguing in diners uh, about art and politics for years now, and we wanted to bring the kind of conversations we were having into a more rigorous, regular format, um, maybe even get some feedback from from listeners. Uh, you know, theoretically, poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Um, uh, but if that's true, then it means that uh, poets and writers and philosophers have been screwing up pretty badly. Um, so... Each episode, we're going to look at manifestos, artist statements, essays about, you know, how we represent the world, how we're supposed to think about it, how we're supposed to, um, you know, portray it in art. Uh, We're going to go through those various statements, pick apart what they're saying, and then compare them against some kind of work of art, a piece of literature, film, anything that might provide a useful contrast. Yeah, and we want you to follow us along on this journey. We're going to keep uh, quite a pace but we expect you'll be able to keep up. And we're also... What? <laughs> <laughs> Don't insult the audience. <laughs> I think they'll be fine. All right. Well, Phil has more faith in you than I do. I'm just saying I respect your efforts either way. Uh, no, uh, what, I, what I honestly wanted to say was we're starting off with the Humanist Manifesto this week, but it's not all going to be dry philosophical statements. We'll get to Valerie Solanus's scum the Cyber Feminist Manifesto, Frank O'Hara's Personism, you know, of course, that old Stand by the Communist Manifesto. We've got a lot in store, uh, but here goes nothing. Okay. So first one we're going to look at is the, the Humanist Manifesto 1, which the uh, American Humanist Association uh, helpfully tells us that it has been declared as historic and superseded by Humanist Manifesto 3, but uh, to my mind, actually the most interesting of the manifestos. And... It starts off uh, stating, you know, the time has come for widespread recognition of the radical changes in religious beliefs throughout the modern world. The time has passed for mere revision of traditional attitudes. Science and economic change have disrupted the old beliefs. And what I think is fascinating about this is this is not their attempt to um, simply declare religion dead, but actually to create a new religion or whatever they're, they're calling um, I think they actually explicitly call it uh, yeah. religion at a yeah. various point. Yeah, yeah, yeah they points. do. Yeah. Um, yes, to establish such a religion is a major necessity of this present, which, you know, in one sense is, is <laughs> it's a little funny to me, like um, a bunch of academics, and it was, I think, 33 folks, including John Dewey, who uh, is the one I think held both of our attention that he had signed it because we both uh, like him. Um, to me, it seemed a little bit like a, a bunch of sort of, uh, you know, uh, 
musicians working at a, a, a academies going, you know, like hip hop is great, but um, you know, there's a lot of misogyny in the lyrics and uh, a lot of celebration of violence that we're not comfortable with. So we're going to create a new musical form. It's going to be called new jazz. Um, <laughs> like, okay, you know, see if that works. Um, all you have to do is give hip hop enough time, and it'll turn into new jazz anyway. Yeah. It always goes that right. way, right? So <laughs> yeah. just step aside, right? Um, and uh, yeah, uh, the the new new world requires quote a new statement of the means and purposes of this religion. Uh, it, the other thing about it is that it, it's unlike I think you know if you look at the the Sam Harris's uh, the new atheists Sam Harris Richard Dawkins. Um, Daniel Dennis and, and uh, the late uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, folks, you know, it's very respectful of religion, right? This age does owe a vast debt to the traditional religions it states at one point. Um, but instead, they have a new set of beliefs that they think are, are not necessarily not logical necessities, but appropriate to the age. I think they might think that they're logical necessities. I, I think that they think they're both appropriate to the age, uh, but appropriate in the sense not of uh, sort of pure contingency, but in the sense of everything has been leading up to this moment. So this is appropriate to the age because it represents the cumulative wisdom of human history. But I do think that, you know, as opposed to Sam Harris, let's say, and the, the New Atheists, and this is something, Phil, you and I talked about, you know, almost 10 years ago is some of the earlier conversations we had. There was a real uh, sort of anti-humanist impulse that you would get from uh, Dawkins, Hitchens sometimes, um, Harris certainly. Not always. They could sort of modulate. But the contempt they had for people's desire for religion, the yeah. the contempt they had for, for people who might seek, uh, you know, to find meaning in belief structures other than their own sort of anti-humanistic, um, explicitly anti-humanistic at times, uh, or rather maybe was a one mode of humanism that is a, in real stark contrast to the humanism represented here. Yeah, 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 for sure. So, you know, they, they come with a, a sort of set of, I guess, creedal propositions. Uh, the universe is self-existing and not created. Uh, man is a part of nature, is emerged as a result of a continuous process. Uh, they reject dualism of mind and body. Um, and uh, <clears throat> and so on. And then it sort of moves through uh, uh, until it's, it, it starts articulating, you know, that we're going to have, for example, um, uh, Instead of the old religious attitudes of worship and prayer, you're going to get your religious emo- emotions expressed in a heightened sense of personal life and in a cooperative effort to promote the social well-being, um, uh, reject the supernatural, and uh, you know, adopt reasonable and manly attitudes, uh, unlike, uh, I suppose, the feminine attitude that um, uh, Indeed. believes in an afterlife. A lot of this is just sort of updated positivism, right? It's an updated version of the 19th century faith in human reason and progress and in the social sciences to act as an efficient, the most efficient means for the organization of life um, because, uh, you know, they are – because because 
life is just nature and you can study nature the same way you can study math and it reveals rules and then you can find ways to work efficiently within those rules. Right. Though though I think, um, <clears throat> again, it's not as, uh, you know, positivism had been getting a few kicks in the teeth, right? And, and I think Bertrand Russell's project uh, had kind of... Uh, encountered great difficulties after there was Goodell's incompleteness theorem, which obviously we both uh, read and <clears throat> checked the math on. I did and, listen to the yeah. In Our Time on Goodell's yeah. incompleteness theorem and could tell you absolutely nothing. And it was like an hour <laughs> and a half. And that's all I know. All I understand is that it was difficult for the project. Um, and so I think that it it, um, it doesn't have the the kind of odor of, of scientism, um, certainly what you find in some of the later um, – no, that's right. Or, or, you know, or the belief that sort of everything is going to be rationally clear. Um, the <clears throat> so it, it it's um it's more and and you know Unitarians were <laughs> involved in this uh, in a bunch of the signatories. Uh, it's more this sort of new shift to a non God centered religion that is organized around you know the complete realization of the human personality being the uh, end of man's life right um, I don't know that that's I mean I think you're broadly right the distinctions you made between this kind of humanism 1930s humanism and 19th century positivism are generally right but you know that cultivation of personality is sort of the highest order thing I mean th- these are these are in a line. You know, this is not a break with that. And let me just read to you. We have here uh, in the manifesto, there are these numbered, what Phil called creedal statements. Here's the 11th for you. Man will learn to face the crisis of life in terms of his knowledge of their naturalness and probability. Reasonable and manly attitudes will be fostered by education and supported by custom. We assume that humanism will take the path of social and mental hygiene right. and discourage sentimental and unreal hopes and wishful thinking. God forbid, you know, you should allow people to have sentimental and unreal hopes and wishful thinking. And certainly there is a way to eradicate those um, in human beings. And, and we should wish for such a thing. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, does that not strike you as uh, preposterous to say in 1933 as much as in any other year? Yes. And it's um, – I think you know part of the problem is to, to, to make man the end of man, right, and then to cut it off from – any sort of of apprehension of a broader reality, right? Um, it just seems it seems <laughs> anti-human, if not anti-humanist. Yeah, yeah. Unless you view man as a, a organ stop, you know. And if you view man as an organ stop, then you put the stop in the organ, and that's what it does. And you just have to figure out which stop and where it goes, and, and what organ, and all that. Wait, what? The organ stop is uh, – no, it's from the underground. So that's uh, some early Theodore D for you, um, you know, which is uh, – no, it's from the underground. Underground I didn't know man. you guys were tight like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, for, for sure, he uh, – you know, he wrote that against the idea of the Crystal Palace and against the propositions of 
positivism and the, the metaphor he uses. It's not the best metaphor in the book, but it stuck with me. The titular character is saying, you know, I don't want to be an organ stop. You know, I don't want to be an object in a, you know, infinitely or perfectly instrumentalized mechanism of the universe. I'm a person. I, I determine myself to, you know, I suffer, I struggle. And if you could remove all of my suffering and all of my struggle, no, I refuse because I don't want to be an organ stop. And let me say, there's something really interesting in this humanist manifesto, and I refer you to uh, statement number six, which goes like this. We are convinced that the time has passed for theism, deism, modernism, Modernism, and the several varieties of new thought. So modernism, right? Why modernism? Why modernism? Modernism because modernism, you know, dramatizes aesthetically uh, not only that Dostoevsky sentiment of I don't want to be an organ stop, but it, it, you can't even be an organ stop, right, in, in modern – it's no longer possible because the subjective fl- plane is so fractured and the purpose of, of consciousness in modernism is to struggle. That's the only, the only heroism left available, you know, and there are varieties of modernism, but a, a prominent strain is this idea that it's only through the, the sort of suffering of the, the consciousness – that the individual really expresses themselves. Um, there's a brilliant uh, essay that Irving Howe wrote called The Idea of the Modern that ran, I believe, originally in commentary, actually. It's the 50-year anniversary last year that gets into this. And it's really interesting, but the fact that these guys define themselves in opposition to modernism, I, I found really interesting. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um and probably more in, in turn with tune with a kind of like uh, Stephen Crane or Frank Norris mm. and the naturalist writers, where you know your, your your job is to you know depict man in his social circumstances circumstances and dissect him like a bug, mm. right? Whereas in you know, kind of the modernist, um, you know, even in somebody like um, you know Conrad, where he just like kind of richly describes all the forces holding you know the individual together, um, there's always a gap, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's never one of the automatons that you have in, right. in, in you know, like Norris's uh, McTeague or whatever. I don't know what that is, but I... It's, it's a... <laughs> I followed the... It's, it's a good novel. It's also, like, crazy racist. There's a Jewish character mm. who literally goes around, like, tapping his, like, curling his fingers mm. and going gold. Um, <laughs> I actually think you'd really like it, Jake. Uh, not... not not for the Jewish character, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but it's a it's a great book. Um, yeah, I always remember in uh, Down and Out, uh, Orwell. You know, Down and Out, in Paris, London. Uh, you know, if you're a, a Jewish reader, you have to develop an approach to the um, slimy, uh, usurious Jews that pop up in literature that you otherwise um, really dig. And I always remember in Down and Out in Paris, London, um, Orwell's got a thing where there's a Jewish guy who's like. What's the line? It's that he's he's lustily stuffing pig into his muzzle. You know, it's something like that. It's that he's both all sort of lust and appetite and 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 taking, and at the same time is profane in his nature. You know, but listen, that is that's a book that's got a lot going for it, other than than that part. So uh, we do what we can, I guess. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the thing about this is I actually really kind of like this manifesto. Um, I guess, you know, the one thing to me is, um, you know, when I, when I look at this, I kind of feel like, you know, I'm walking through a rainforest and the manifesto is saying to me, like, we have rationally proved that there is, you know, ground and sky and we haven't worked out anything else. So you're walking through a desert, you know? You're often quoted by the British Humanist yes. Association as mm-hmm. one of their uh, most prominent members. You you would describe yourself as a humanist. Yes, I think probably I'm kind of a bad humanist because also I'm a writer of imaginative fiction and, and, and I have a certain kind of narrative streak. So um, I think humanism is correct, but probably dull. <laughs> But it's telling you the reason why I think we both like this and we promise to disagree more in the future. But the reason why we both like this is because it at least recognizes the need for something outside the desert, you know, and it's not um, it hasn't decided that it can tell you sort of dictate so much what you need. It, It still is working off the idea that if we see humans demonstrating a need, perhaps we. We can't just decide to eliminate it. Right. And, you know, maybe the, the thing to do is to find other ways to try and answer that, which, which I respect. And, and, um, and there's actually, though we've been very critical, there's a lot to be said for this manifesto as yeah. an attempt to grapple with these ideas. Um, and there's an, an inherent problem in a manifesto, right, that you're all, it's always going to be programmatic, yeah. so it'll be easy for us to pick it apart. And, and I think if, if, uh, if, if a religious sensibility is just not open to you, this is really good. I think this is um, – one more thing about, you know, <clears throat> the modernist. There's a line from Céline where he, he defines human beings, right, uh, in Journey to the End of the Night. And he mm. says, you know about innards, the trick they play on tramps in the country? They stuff an old wallet with putrid chicken innards. Well, take it from me, a man is just like that, except he's fatter and hungrier and can move around. And inside there's a dream. (laughs) Jesus, man. Speaking of, you know, writers of unbelievable power who are vicious, loathsome, deeply anti-Semitic, you know, the the kind of (laughs) rational humans would be like, well, yes, there's a dream inside, but we can understand it in the context of these social material forces and... But they don't uh, – it uh, would never occur to a guy who would write a manifesto like this that, uh, you know, a human being is a fat uh, <laughs> a, a fat thing with chicken innards stuffed in his pocket and that that's not bad. <laughs> you know, that, that that's just uh, – mm. that's just what it is. It's yeah. – some of this is just disposition, right? Yeah. But look, this is the thing about manifestos. We, we want to get near to the wild heart of life, right? You want something uncharted. This is a kind of mapping of the human person that is incapable of producing anything but, um, if not violence and coercion, because uh, it doesn't necessarily have to become totalitarian, right? But but disappointment and a kind of conflicted nature that something so programmatic. It's always going to fail, you know. Well, I, I, yeah, I don't think it, it, this this particular statement lends itself to totalitarianism, but it it um, it just does seem, does seem barren, right? So, you know, I mean, the like, hygiene thing, though. the hygiene is is <laughs> is uh, creepy, but um, you know, 
We're not going to have any attitudes associated with belief in the supernatural. Yes, you will. That's definitely going to happen. Um, no matter how how you, how much you constrain them to the the, the unre- unreasonable and, and feminine, I guess. Uh, you know, religion must work for joy and living, and man is the end of man. You know, in a way, it's, it's actually not that dissimilar to you know for you know what some people call the um, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, where yeah, you sort of say that there's a God, but that God is entirely constricted to the moral and the self-help and the things for the greater kind of happiness of man. It doesn't – I mean in terms of how how one lives, it doesn't, doesn't uh, I think, alter the practice that much. And that, that method of religion to me and to a lot of people seems ultimately empty, right? Um, bloodless myth is what you called it when we were A bloodless myth, yeah, this. borrowing yeah. from Hill, who we'll talk about later. So – uh, All right, from Hill. You know, there's there's a wonderful bit from William James where he's talking about the um, uh, Protestant versus Catholic mm. um, spiritualities, right? And the the kind of I'm a Catholic, so the, the proliferation of forms in Catholicism. You know, I remember going through Geneva, and it's you know a lovely city, but you go into those churches, and they've just been stripped bare of everything that made them beautiful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he has this wonderful bit uh, where, to intellectual Catholics, many of the antiquated beliefs and practices to which the church gives countenance are, if taken literally, literally, as childish as they are to Protestants. But they are childish in the pleasing sense of childlike, innocent and amiable, and worthy to be smiled on in consideration <laughs> of the undeveloped condition of the dear people's intellects. To the Protestant, on the contrary, they are childish in the sense of being idiotic falsehoods. <laughs> He must stamp out their delicate and lovable redundancy, leaving the Catholic to shudder at his literalness. He appears to the latter as morose as if he were some hard-eyed, numb, monotonous kind of reptile. (laughs) The two will never understand each other. I'll tell you, I didn't mean to cut you off, I'm sorry. I I don't understand how in the course of the last couple of years I have found myself so often in the middle of (laughs) intra-confessional Christian uh, (laughs) philosophy, but... I'll just put on the table right now. Well, here, I'll put it this way. There's an old joke. A Jewish guy is in Dublin, and he runs into a gentleman on the street in Dublin who he doesn't know at all, doesn't know from Adam. But this, uh, you know, Irish fellow says to him, now, are you a a Protestant or a Catholic, sir? I'm not going to try broke. He says, are you a Protestant or a Catholic to our... uh, our Jewish character who will say is visiting from New York. And the Jewish guy says, uh, you know, I'm honestly just visiting. I'm actually neither a Catholic or a Protestant. I'm a Jew. And the Irish guy replies to him, yeah, but are you a Catholic Jew or a Protestant Jew? (laughs) And I'll lay my cards on the table here. Aesthetically, I'm a Catholic Jew. Um, You know, I I reserve the right to switch teams at any point. but, um, But I understand the Catholic aesthetic uh, just from having read so much Flannery O'Connor as a kid, probably, um, and, and some other stuff. But I understand, I understand that. I think if I think with my heart, that's where it goes. Um, and and so that, you know, that inverted both the way James presents it and the inversion of that makes some sense to me. I mean, I understand those at least, and it's interesting with James, is I understand those at least as sort of sentimental types. I forget the exact phrase James uses, but in pragmatism, you know, James has the idea that uh, your politics are as much a function of your sort of, 
your disposition as anything sure. else, which is obviously true, right? This is yeah. why people who are like so totally committed to their politics, it's just a weird look because, you know, you're just you're mistaking your sort of personality and the fashions of your personality for some eternal truth about the world, um, which is a weird thing to do unless, in fact, all is vanity. And then it makes sense. Okay. Should we talk about what this would look like in practice? Let's get it. Okay. So what would this look like in practice, right? You have no idea? I really – I don't know, but I want to hear what you're going to say. I mean it's, it's hard because it's sort of, you know, vague principles with a realization that you need to actually have some set of kind of ritual practice associated with it. And that's – that was actually one of the things that I really liked, right? They, they describe that, you know, religion has had three things, a total environing situation, theology or worldview, the sense of values resulting therefrom, a goal or ideal, and the technique, cult, Right, established for realizing the satisfactory life. So they know there needs to be some sort of kind of process that can be entered into communally <clears throat> that allows people to uh, express these ideals and also internalize them at the same time. And I was thinking about you know kind of what what um, non-religious forms we have. You know, I've I've, I've been in in conversations with at this point a variety of of uh, people uh, from like sort of purely secular atheist. Uh, uh, positions who who have described one of the difficulties being funerals, right? That you need a form at a funeral. It, d- it almost doesn't really matter what it is, right? Um, and that uh, if you've abandoned a faith tradition, there's not, you know, if you haven't planned it in advance, uh, there's not a, a sort of ready go-to form to, to, to go to. And I think about, you know, in one sense, it's not just, um, you know, about what somebody individually comes up with. Right. Here's my individualistic form for how I want to be commemorated. This is a part of that because part of the point of ritual is that it's a set of community communal practices. It's a that social occasion. Yeah, everybody's buying into, and there's a kind of language to the ritual. Right. Um, uh, and people want to mourn together. Right? Yeah. They don't want to mourn in isolation. Right. Often. And the example I came up with was in the military. Right. A military funeral has a very kind of codified and actually deeply powerful. Um, method, right? Um, it's not, uh, need not be specifically religious, right? Um, uh, the kind of high point of the ceremony comes when they call roll call, where, uh, you know, the, the company first sergeant of, of the deceased will get up and, uh, and start calling out soldiers' names and, you know, you know, Smith, here first sergeant, Jones, here first sergeant, and then they'll get to the name of the, the deceased you know, it'll be like, you know, Cofield, silence. Henry Cofield, silence. Henry, James, Cofield, and then they play taps. And um, it's deeply, deeply powerful, right? And beyond that, there's, you know, there's uh, sets of rituals accompanying almost every aspect of military life, which is important uh, in terms of establishing a set of norms and ideals for people and, and them internalizing them. And even kind of when you when you break from tradition, like when you're out beyond the flagpole and the, your soldiers start growing their their beards or whatever, I uh, you know, out. Not that I've ever been in, in that uh, situation. Like that has a meaning because it's a breach, right, from from the normal kind of code of ethic. And that, and that is a secular ceremony, right? Although I think that – it's only secular insofar as it's not an explicit call out to God, but I think it's kind of related to the American civil religion. 
Yeah, but civil religion is um, is secular, and that is, I think, that's explicitly secular. You know, I think. Um, well, yeah, you, you know this. Um, Eisenhower said, uh, uh, like, a, if government is going to have any sense, I forget exactly. Like, if it's going to have any sense, like, it needs to be grounded in a religion, and I don't care what that religion is. Yeah, but see, here's the thing that presents itself, right? We started this off with the quote from the, the British poet Geoffrey Hill yeah. about bloodless myth. Well, okay, now you've got blood for your secular myth, right? Well, th- this is the thing. That's why the military stuff works. That's, and it's a disturbing conclusion yeah. that, uh, I mean, maybe it's not a disturbing conclusion. It, it presents itself, certainly. Um, but yeah, that works. Good. So what? So humanists, in order to be good human, you know, in order to have working humanism, you just need uh, war. You just need um, the taking and giving of life, and then you can do a workable humanism. <laughs> I mean, I I think if you bring that up, then it would go beyond humanism, right? So tremendous amount of kind of political power is derived from sacrificial figures. Hmm. But the proposition of humanism, right? The implicit yeah. proposition. Is this, that you're going to get beyond yes, that kind of and bloody. And that's the interesting tension mm-hmm. in this first humanist manifesto is that it, it acknowledges the need, right? It doesn't believe it's transcended the need yet. You know, you get to like the Dawkins-Harris thing. I forget, what was the other guy? Krauss? Uh, Harris? You know, they called them like the four horsemen. Uh, Hitchens. It was Hitchens, Dennett. Uh... No, not Dennett. Dennis was it Dennis? Yeah, Dennis yeah. Was him. yeah. So listen, these guys, right? It's, it was all about having. He's the one who wanted uh, people to start calling unbelievers brights. Which, <laughs> just like the. Like, yeah, that's going to work. It's <laughs> just the unbelievable <laughs> telescope society nerdishness <laughs> of some. I mean, where do you get off set, calling people. Br- I mean, where do you get off with this stuff? Some. But you know, the, the, the joke science is, club. It's not I mean, that you would start calling yourself bright. Obviously, that's how you think of yourself. But that other people are going to adopt that terminology. Of <laughs> Lord, I shall give these laws unto thy people. Hear me. Oh, hear me. All pay heed. The Lord, the Lord Jehovah, has given unto you these 15... <laughs> 10, 10 commandments... For all to obey. Shall we move on to uh, Humanist Manifesto number two? Yeah, I, I have very little to say about it's this. It's terrible. One. I mean, uh, my <laughs> the, the separation of ideology and the state are imperatives. Good luck with that. Um, should we move on to three? I think yeah. even I think even even the human society realized that 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 um, that two was just a. Ba- it's really long. It's dumb. I- I'm sorry, but just... Yeah, now two is the Asimov one or three is the Asimov one? Two they is both the Asimov are. one. No, yeah. three is Vonnegut, man. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So that maybe that tells you something about why it at least gets, like, lively again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think even I think even the, they knew that it was bad because the, the... You like Vonnegut? I do like Vonnegut. Which... What Vonnegut? Um... God. Well, so here's here's the thing. I like the. First I read song. Vonnegut when yeah. I was younger. Now I, yeah, have a, I, have a, I had a teacher who, who once said that Vonnegut is not a writer; he's a stage of adolescence, yeah. and I think that's uh, not 
that's not fair. Sounds like somebody who was threatened by him, honestly. Yeah. Um, so, but I, I, I haven't really read him since I was an adolescent. Yeah, listen, I mean, it's the line. The, the thing in Vonnegut is the line. Like, I, either you like the line or you don't, but it's not, these are not dense novels of ideas or something. I mean, there's a, there's a pace and a rhythm and, uh, you know, a sort of way he's trying to stir a bit of life that either you respond to or you don't, but that's what's going on there. Anyway, I liked in Breakfast of Champions the first time I read it. Um, I was pretty young, and there are these pages where he has the drawings, and it's like, this is yeah. a penis, and this is a vagina, and he illustrates them. And I, was I, it, I read uh, I I never forgot bits that. of, um, God, was it Timequake or something like that? I wasn't expecting I've never to discuss. He has some good short stories too. I was going to mention uh, uh, Harrison Bergeron in, mm. in, in when we start talking about equality. Okay. But all right, so Manifesto Three is a successor to the Humanist Manifesto of 1933, which to me makes it sound like they're just trying to pretend that two didn't happen. Right. Um, uh, which you know is a, uh, I think uh, speaks well of them. Um, one of the authors uh, of two is a World War One veteran. Uh, who's that? Uh, Edwin Wilson. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway. All right. Three. So this is, it, I mean, it's pretty simple. It all fits on one page. And then they've this, I think it's this big list of signatories. Um, you know, Vonnegut is one. Uh, Ilya Prigonier is another. Anthony Plew, uh, Dawkins. Um, yeah, all kinds of fancy people. A bunch of Nobel laureates. Uh, a lot of in science. You know, Nobel laureate in physics, Nobel laureate in medicine, another Nobel laureate in physics. So a lot of folks with uh, Nobel prizes. Um, this one I had a, a huge number of problems with, uh, and I wonder if you felt the same. I didn't like it at all, uh, and I thought it was. It seemed a lot more certain of itself, and a lot of its claims kind of ridiculous. Yeah, those go together, right? Yeah, but I, it's in a way. Uh what would happen to one if you left it alone to age for 70 years, you know, with um, sort of with social forces on its side and to get more and more confident. And a certain degree of churlishness about the fact that um, the world has not come around, I think. Mm, right. So. But the heights have. <laughs> but the dopes haven't. The heights have. Yeah, the brights. The, the brights, brights have. have right. Mm -hmm. So first proposition, knowledge of the world is derived by observation, experimentation, and rational analysis. Humans find that science is the best method for determining this knowledge as well as for solving problems and developing beneficial technologies. And then and then the sort of like as a side, we also recognize the values of new departures in thought, the arts, and inner experience, each subject to analysis by critical intelligence. It's sort of like the arts are probably valuable um, <laughs> somehow. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I... It's fine. Uh, I think, for my mind, to my mind, like, uh, and this is one of the sort of entire purposes of religion, right? Almost none of our most important choices are made through observation, experimentation, and rational analysis, right? Um, I think. Uh, Oh, I'll tell you. Story. Observation, maybe. The Observation, other two, sure. Yeah. I mean, like, and Not a certain degree of rational analysis, uh, along with intuition. I saw there was one, you know, uh, uh, physics um, uh, Nobel laureate who who declined to uh, to sign the note. Um, 
And the reason that he did was that, you know, uh, the manifesto mentions rational analysis but doesn't talk about intuition, right, which is incredibly important. Mm. Uh, and that, you know, he says, you know, analysis in purely rational terms is essentially positivism, which was shown by later schools of philosophy to, to be unworkable in that it appears that a lot of accepted knowledge, even in science, cannot be derived by purely rational arguments. Um, yeah. This is Brian Joseph, uh, Josephson who won the Nobel in physics in uh, 1973. Um, Sounds like uh, a smart guy. Intuition is inevitable even in the thought processes of the most rational thinkers. As I've put it in my own writings, we think that we think clearly, but that is only because we don't think clearly. Um, so yeah, I'll tell you a story. I, I, a roommate, great guy who um, uh, was a creationist, right? And I slowly over the course of like a couple months convinced him that evolution was real, which involved me having to learn a lot of biology because the, you know, the, the defenses of creationism um, that, that you can find if you're in that community are pretty sophisticated and, and, and easily capable of, of crushing, you know, the sort of lay educated non-science majors knowledge of, of, of evolution, which is generally pretty slight. Um, so it took a lot of work. Um, and, uh, you know, I convinced him, but, you know, he said, well, you know, you're better at arguing than me, but that doesn't mean you're right. So let me just, you know, repeat your arguments to, you know, this friend of mine. And, uh, so that he wouldn't have to re repeat the, uh, counter arguments. He put the phone on speaker, right? While he made the phone call. And so he explains, you know, what he's been thinking to this guy who's a fundamentalist preacher. And the guy sort of listens and he's like, oh, you know, okay. Um, well, you know, you've always been a child with a great love of Jesus. And there are people in this world who are going to see that. They're, they're, they're scoffers and they're God-haters. <laughs> And they're going to want to destroy that love of Jesus, you know. And I love science. I know I love that science has proven that man lived at the same time as the dinosaurs, right? Mm. It, keeps, it goes on this long rant about science and faith and how the scoffers and the, the God-haters, right? Yeah. Me, meaning me, sure. right? I'm the scoffer. And, the, and, of course, I was kind of tickled and amused. Uh, Typical Catholic. Yeah. My friend can see that I'm tickled and amused. And he also knows enough about the arguments that, that I'm making to know the counter-arguments that are being provided are not particularly good. Okay? So... By the end of the phone call, he sort of hangs up lightly, and then he turns to me and he says, um, okay, you know, I, I know what you heard and you think that was silly, right? But I want you to know that I learned today that I can learn different things from different people. And I think that, you know, you're probably right in this evolution stuff, but I want you to know that, you know, this guy, whenever I've had moral questions or questions about how to treat other people in my life, right, he has given me the best advice that allows me to do things that I am proud of rather than ashamed of and to treat other people well. Uh, which was like, oh, okay. <laughs> You're not a biologist. I can teach you a kind of thing that's fundamentally irre irrelevant to your life. And he can teach you how to be a person in the world, right? Um, and, <laughs> you know, I think that there's a frequent sort of overvaluation of what science experimentation can do for us uh, in terms of settling literally the everyday uh, existence that we go through, uh, which almost never has anything to do with any of that stuff. Right. But he can't give up the preacher for all that he's done for this kid, can't give up his claim to science. Yeah. Because if he gives up his claim to science, he knows he's given up the house. Um, he hasn't or he hasn't figured out how to do it in a way yet that doesn't give up the house. You have a good 
an instructive parable. Let me tell you a story that adds up to nothing, but is worth <laughs> listening to. Okay. I was in Afghanistan with a kid whose, um, I won't use his last name, his first name was Miles. And he was a Hasidic Jew in, the, in an infantry battalion in the National Guard. And he was an infantry platoon leader. And, you know, an infantry platoon leader is out all the time, let's say, patrolling. He, he, can't, um, he can't just stay on the base. Right. And this kid wore a yarmulke and what are, you know, tzitzit, which are the, the fringes that come down. Uh, if you're, you live in New York, you'll know what we're talking about. But there, it's a religious garb that um, Orthodox Jews wear, um, uh, sort of prayer shawl. And he would typically conceal them, but some, you know, or he made efforts to conceal them, but he wore them all the time. And um, myself and a, a few of the other Jewish guys in the unit who deployed before and been to Iraq were like, you got to take that off, you know? You can either be... Hasidic in Afghanistan, or you can be a platoon leader. You can't be both. You can't be going out like that. And uh, I don't know what he ended up doing. You know, he wasn't my platoon leader, so it wasn't ultimately for me to tell him what to do. He had a company commander whose job that was. But I had that talk with him. But I also recall, this was a very smart kid. I believe he'd grown up, you know, maybe sort of conservative or, or reformed Jew or something like that, you know, identifying as Jewish with some religious practice, but certainly not the level of religious practice of being Hasidic, which is very religious. And I remember another time as a smart kid, he was giving me the whole Bible code spiel. Do you know that about how it's numerology? Oh, yeah. yeah. So he was using mysticism, yeah. essentially pagan mysticism, <laughs> to prove to me that the Torah was the ultimate authority on matters of science and uh, the material world. And he did that because there are all these elaborate constructions. The Kabbalah is way into this. Um, but, you know, if you do this in a very literal way, you look uh, foolish, I think. Yeah. And, and I like the kid and I respected him, but he put himself in a position to look foolish at that moment. Well, I mean, it's also... You know, in a weird way, so, th you know, this, it seems to me like a, a, a deep desire for kind of foundational grounding, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's what the kind of fundamentalist approach to religion and, and um, the uh, a kind of scientism uh, have in common, right? That there's a place of rest, um, which I don't think is, is really available to us. A place of rest, meaning what? That you can sort of have a clear authority to kind of build your your sort of um, foundations of the world and your worldview up that that are you know impenetrable impen, impenetrable to attack uh, and are firm. That you have a rule book for the world. Yeah, I think maybe if you have a very high functioning mind, frankly, it's close enough. You, yeah. you can. Uh, you can extemporize a rule book, right? But if you have any inclination towards a sort of universalist spirit, and universalist is a dirty word these days, but universalism yeah. um, is important because it means that you don't reserve, you don't just arrogate rights to yourself. Is that that's the right use of arrogate, right? You don't just um, claim rights for yourself. You say, 
I understand that a right I claim for myself that I don't extend to my fellow human beings is just a license to tyranny and to violence. And um, so if you have any sort of democratic or universalist spirit, which, you know, a lot of people don't, uh, or some people don't rather, but if you do, then it matters what it matters that most people want a foundation, seem to need a foundation, and maybe like the first manifesto, you try and improve that foundation. Uh, I think that that's a noble, worthwhile effort for whatever ways um, that particular project failed. The, hey, we're going to rip the foundation out from under you sort of thing, mock it, um, that I don't respect. The, um, so in the second part... Uh, humans are an integral part of nature, the result of unguided evolutionary change. Humanists recognize nature as self-existing. Well, that's why I thought, okay, based on what observations, experiments, you know, rational analysis, I guess, would be what they claim. But, um, you know, I don't think that is a – I don't think that is self-evident um, to all rational people. Uh, and then the next one is uh, ethical values are derived from human need and interest as te- te- tested by experience. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, the, the, the notion of kind of incommensurate needs, whatever, we're committed to treating each person as having inherent worth and dignity. Uh, this is the bit where I, I thought to myself, I bet Peter Singer didn't sign this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then of course, Singer, uh, uh, didn't. And, uh, I actually found a, you know, an attack where he mentions this bit. Well, he denounces it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause he's, he doesn't consider anything particularly, uh, unique about humans. Right. Right. Um, and if you're uh, really rejecting mind-body dualism, you yep. know, maybe you can find perfectly good grounds for that. If you're really re- rejecting ideology, right? So later, you know, they, they say we need to uphold the equal enjoyment of human rights. Well, you know, based on based on what? Yeah. Um, it, it you know it can't be, uh, and Singer I think would point out it can't be rational analysis or observations or experiments. He's got some pretty powerful arguments for why. Um, Humans are not equal, right? He doesn't think – now, if you want to go down the Singer route, which most people reject, um, you have to say some pretty nasty things about um, you know, disabled people. Singer quickly is a utilitarian philosopher who's sort of famous for arguing, um, for instance, that uh, mentally disabled people, um, that – what is it? That it might be right to – not execute them. If, but, if, uh, if you're mentally disabled and you have the same cognitive capacities as a chimpanzee, you've got the same sort of claim no, to right, no right. rights that are specific just just to being a human. Yeah. That your your status is based purely sort of on your the richness of your capacity for thinking and feeling. And feeling pain too is, is right. I think something. Right, right, right. feeling yeah, pain so, too. Uh, if we're if we're bastardizing singer, I, I apologize, but. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, if he's got a better argument, but then he would, you know, you couldn't really call him a humanist. So here's what gets, you know, here's what I think about, too. And um, this actually just occurred to me. I say I think about it like I've been carrying it around, but I really um, thought about it in the course of this conversation. And that is you're talking about ideology, right? Well, you know. Marxism is a, a secular ideology, not quite humanist, but uh, certainly an offshoot of positivism. Other forms of sort of left-wing um, ideological practice 
come from similar roots. But unlike this sort of humanism, which amounts to the series of airy platitudes, right? These are this most of the stuff is just platitudes, and they might be more or less true. These yeah. platitudes, but it, but they're still platitudes. I, be, I believe in the equal enjoyment of human rights. It just doesn't tell you anything, right? Now I'm not a I'm not a Marxist, but I, at least they're trying to say, you know, something beyond a platitude. Okay, we're past the there is no God thing. We know that. Yeah. We don't need to found a new religion on the fact that there is no God. Now that there's no God. How, how is human society organized? What's the, you know, what's the sort of foundation? You're talking about the foundation. Yeah. Here you go. Class conflict, you know, yeah. means of production. That at least has a, what do you say? It has a, an eros to it. A, yeah. a, a, is eros the right word? It feels like it's not, but it's something more than platitudes, right? It's something about the, the working of the world and your place in it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the grounding that they it's, – it's derived from human need and interest is tested by experience. But that doesn't – to me, that just seems – You know the thing about Doritos, how um, they optimized I – I can't wait to see where this goes. Okay. So I'm not sure if it was Doritos, but let's just say it was. It was some sort of chip. And what they did was whoever they built owns an it, artificial mouse. <laughs> no. They, no, they did. They built an artificial mouth? Did, like, to, like, test crunchiness? I think so. Oh, not the sextile thing that came out this week you're talking about. Um, <laughs> this week? Yeah, there was <laughs> Talking about news. Doritos. Anyway, go on. Well, just so it doesn't seem weird that I said that, <laughs> sex dolls were... Um, they have these new... The, there's a new sort of sex doll that was in the news this week. Doritos... <laughs> That's right, in the news, not your apartment. No. Uh, Doritos... Uh, basically was trying to find how do we maximize the number of chips that people will eat because we want to be able to sell you the most chips. So so they looked at sort of the uh, constituent unit, the chip. Yeah. So how do we design the perfect chip so that you'll eat the most chips so that we'll sell the most bags of Doritos and we'll make the most money? And what they found is you don't want a chip that's too tasty. Right? Because then the person will quickly get satiated. Mm. It's too rich, they'll stop eating. You don't want a chip that's too bland, they'll lose interest. You need to create just enough taste to get them to reach for the next one, but not so much taste, uh, so much satisfaction that they already feel satisfied. So that's what you want for your life. You want, you want like, you know, Facebook to adopt the. Doritos philosophy and, and figure out how much sex you should have every week, how much music you should listen to in order to optimize for maximum efficiency along every vector of your existence. I believe that they can do that. I believe that they can do that because it's got just enough arbitrariness and just enough empirical basis that uh, you could, you know, that's what it needs, right? It can't be too provable, um, but it can't be based on nothing. Well, but so, I, I think the big question, or I could be wrong, but efficient to whom? Um, efficient to everybody, you know, for the, the universe. They'll make it efficient for the whole universe. Now, you don't know what efficiency is because you don't have access to the data. They have the data, so they have the algorithms, so they have the efficiency. And all you have to do is trust them to efficiencize you, um, and they'll do it. So, uh, you know, I, I would propose to you not to let that happen. I think you probably have parts of yourself that uh, are meaningful to you that you ought to hold on to. 
But I don't know. It starts with Doritos, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Should we talk about how three would work if implemented? Yeah. Well, well, I mean, just yeah. Sorry. So, just real quickly. I mean, I one. I think the the equal rights thing. Something I agree with, but it's smuggle ideology, and, and they they don't. Mm. You know, what is what is a human, right? Yeah. Right. You that's know? a good question. There's what a, is there's a, human? a there's a uh, that's the, a really different lectures question. were given by Jeremy Waldron recently mm. uh, on equal human rights, and he he comes up with a pretty good secular uh, model for for equal human rights, but. You know, he's coy about it, but, it, it, you know, if, if you give his model, it would have implications for, um, you know, unborn children, which I think, uh, you know, uh, probably everybody signing this letter wouldn't be comfortable with. Uh, if you have a more restricted view of what makes a human, yeah. uh, uh, are you going to start excluding people with disabilities? Are you going to base it on consciousness or intelligence well, look, or what people, have you? Yeah, I'm just, it just it just it makes it sure. it makes it's a it's a difficult it's a very difficult fraught question. That a lot of you know a lot of people have struggled with, and you can't just wave it away uh, and pretend that somehow this is based on human need and interest. I mean, it's 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 comical. Uh, and then there's like there's you know working to benefit society maximizes individual hap- happiness. I mean, like I like that idea. Again, it just seems smuggled ideology. Life's fulfillment emerges from individual participation in the service of humane ideals for everybody. Right? Is the Facebook algorithm really going to find that? Is your you know. <laughs> Your fulfillment? I don't know. I, I I think that there's a lot of stuff that just seems to me like, like smuggled ideology in here. Yeah. Um, and oddly enough, you know, you know, the thing about equality, uh, Vonnegut wrote one of the kind of classic short stories about oh, equality the, with the old guys and the coupling. It's the uh, Harrison Bergeron where it's like it's a society where nobody is allowed to be better than anybody else. If you're like really strong, mm. you have to wear like weights. There's like uh, – if you have like a beautiful voice, you have like a voice distorter right, right, that right. makes everybody sound like you, Jake. Um, <laughs> is this – wait. There's the one – I'm kidding. You, you have a beautiful voice. Thank and you. that's why we're doing this podcast because the world needs to be exposed to it. They say a face made for radio. Yeah. Um, is that the one where uh, young women – are essentially given to old men because young men have too much of an advantage. So Vonnegut's got a story where to make things fair, you know. Um, I already mentioned I haven't read Vonnegut since high school. Yeah, so yeah, it's been a while. It's entirely possible. But it's in a similar vein. Yeah. Um, anyway, so what would this look like? The Facebook algorithm world? Yeah, something like that, right? And yeah. again, most of these propositions... Well, I, I, but, yeah. You know, and that that sounds... Terrible, but I think that there's there's a lot of people who think like, look, we get enough data, we're going to find out what really makes people happy versus because what they it's say. true in the aggregate. Because it's true in the aggregate, but also because we can measure it, and if we can't measure it, it doesn't exist. And we measure things that are sort of zero or one, and then you know we'll be able to have a perfect world where people get everything that they want, uh, or at least where they are. Um, you know, this is. I mean, this is the uh, brave new world. Uh, yeah, but it's also dystopia, or yeah. you know, a sort of techno utopian future where we have ever higher states of consciousness. And... Th- that would be the sort of milk toast version of it. You know, the real version is um, more ruthless competition, and not that you know we'll have a, a total leveling of society because we'll be able to maximize everybody's 
satisfaction, but that with current restraints removed and the ability to sort of get out of capitalism and liberal democracy, what that'll free up is a, a new aristocracy, basically. And um, it's, you know, it's profoundly undemocratic. It's profoundly individualistic. And it's not about maximizing for everybody. It's about channeling through technology maximum individual human potential, right? Yeah. Well, what, what you're saying is more to the point of uh, what, what I asked earlier. And the reason I asked it is because what you didn't address is that with the Dorito analogy, uh, that is ex- extremely expressly to the benefit of the company making Doritos right. and extremely to your detriment because you get fat and broke and sick. I don't know if it is extremely to your detriment. I think that it's not extremely to your detriment, and that's why you buy the Doritos. I don't know if people go broke buying Doritos. I don't think they do. Well, right? well, the idea being, though, you're right, you don't go broke, but you spend more money on Doritos and eat more Doritos, which is but just never a good But you want to eat Doritos, thing. right? No, 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 but it's, it's not that they're... they're it can't they're be so it. onerous... Or it would break you. It's just that the house always wins. No, well, yeah, they're tuning it away this, from your interests. Maybe this is this is. I don't. I don't actually foresee a, a sort of extreme dystopia, right? But I do see a kind of constant temptation to sort of um, fine tune that which makes you the most satisfied, which is very different from what uh, provides you the most meaning. And so I think you'd have. You know, continual sort of whether underground men who come out sort of antagonistically or just sort of people who try and form little uh, spaces outside of this mode of thinking. I think you would have that in the world, right? Um, It's just that the temptations and pleasures and sort of satisfaction delivery of a society that just sort of fulfilled all your wants, uh, which by the way, look, there's many good things to say about this vision of humanity. I think it, it is humane. Uh, ultimately, I think it would be ultimately unsatisfying to people. Yeah, I'm not sure that it's ultimately humane, but I, I suppose it depends on what and, you're, and, and, more and, humane than other systems. Right. Um, you know, it depends. Look, I don't, I don't foresee an extreme dystopia either, um, and I really try to keep myself from sort of letting my literary impulses lead me towards a millenarianism that uh, you know is not to anybody's benefit, but. If you if you sort of outsource enough of this from yourself, um, there's just less and less of you left. You know, in, in other words, if you give up more and more of these uh, decisions over your own life, I mean, this is the same. The political systems do this too. It's not just technology. You know, if you are entrusting these critical aspects of your life to an external system, whether that external system is a state ideology that provides through the party apparatus or whether that external system is, uh, you know, an algorithm, there's just less of you left. I mean, that's, that's what I think. I mean, uh, to, well, to go back to the manifesto, right? So it is very, I mean, it, there is a lot of focus on the individual, right? And that theoretically, you know, these values are grounded in kind of basic individual desires and wants the same as, you know, they just don't, they don't value the same things that we do necessarily, but they think that this will actually fulfill those and that having a society where, you know, these are the dominant values that are um, sponsored and promoted will lead to more pro-social behaviors that, that, that actually, you know, provide fulfillment for people. Um, And I think that, 
you know, in, in, in the best case scenario, this, the society that they're describing is better than the current one that we have, right? Um, and I think there's always going to be space for the sorts of things that we want. Uh, I just think that this is a, um, you know, sort of threadbare vision of reality that doesn't actually quite – where the pieces that they think hang together rationally don't actually quite hang together. Yeah, and I, you know what? Maybe you're right that this is better than what we have now. It's easy to sort of put yourself in a, a frame of mind, easy for me anyway, where um, you know I could pick anything apart and and show what's wrong with it without ever conceiving of what what something better might look like. Maybe this is better, you know, worth considering. Okay, so but uh, you know, speaking of this um, uh, kind of march of progress towards a more humane society that, that, that allow, you know, fulfills our needs better as humans and, and, and gives us more enjoyment uh, in our lives. Uh, I wonder what Jeffrey Hill would say about that. Poetry is a strange angel and has very little to do with enjoyment, actually. Great deal to do with joy, not with enjoyment. Enjoyment is patronizing and possessive, like the old archaic euphemism of a man in sexually enjoying a woman's body. So when you enjoy a poem, you say, you are mine. And you please me in my current mood. And the angel of poetry says, sod off. Shut off! So it's uh, Jeffrey Hill, English poet who died recently um, and uh, whose body of work is <sighs> kind of a, a, a brick thrown through the humanist window, I think. Um, very concerned with religion, with man's proclivity to violence, with historical... Um, uh, she was like the Holocaust, Princess Di's funeral, he wrote a lot of poems about. Um, and uh, we were going to talk about his first published poem, Genesis. I think is this his first ever published this poem? This is his first poem. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's quite a debut. Yeah, yeah. Um, For the Unfallen, which begins, Against the burly air I strode, crying the miracles of God. And, you know... With that opening, you might you might think this is going to be a kind of Gerald Manley Hopkins esque um, exaltation in creation, but it gets a lot more um, violent very quickly after the first section. Yeah, the the part I was really drawn to is the second section, and it starts like this: The second day, I stood and saw. The osprey plunged with triggered claw, feathering blood along the shore to lay the living sinew bare. Um, something about, you know, birds of prey tearing into sinews. <laughs> I, I'm not proud to admit, always uh, been a favorite motif of mine in poetry. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's, um, you know, it, it moves so quickly to the violence inherent yeah. in creation, which, um, you know, for for some people is 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 an argument against a kind of divine purpose in order the the cruelty 
uh, and the blind struggle uh, that's a part of, of the natural order, right? Um, but for him, it it actually leads him back to uh, kind of religious myth and sentiment. Um, what about the suffering of a child? Hmm? What about the suffering of a child? Well, that's at the heart of the Christian religion, right, which is his religion. Hmm. That, um, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a religion that... So it's justified then that children suffer? No. Um, the, the heart of the Christian religion is a, um, a unjustly tortured and killed son, hmm. right? A grown son. A grown son. Not yeah. a child. Not a child. Um, though uh, as blameless as a child in, in, the, in the Christian religion, hmm. right? Um, and so he reaches about the, by the fifth section. He writes, On the sixth day as I rode in haste about the works of God, with spurs I plucked the horse's blood. By blood we live, the hot, the cold, to ravage and redeem the world. There is no bloodless myth will hold. And so I think it's it's kind of in an odd sense the very cruelty of creation um, that leads him back to bloody myths, right? That leads him back? I mean, he starts there. He huh? starts there. Fair, yeah, yeah. Fair he enough. He doesn't wander very far. Yeah. He recoils in horror and then heads back. You think he recoils in horror? Show me where. <laughs> I don't see that. I, honestly, I don't see him recoiling in horror. I mean, maybe he draws back a bit. I don't I don't right, see right. horror there. You know, it's almost like a distancing effect. And here. I renounced on the fourth day this fierce and unregenerate clay. <clears throat> There's nowhere near as much blood in that as there is in the bloody lines, though. Maybe there is. Maybe, right, so that, no, that, imme- yeah. that immediately follows... All right, so after the second section, which is about the Osprey plunging. I mean, I'm just saying unregenerate clay yeah. and sinew laid bare. Yeah. Um, you know, if you stack those next to each other. Uh, well, either it's, a, it's, a renunci- it's a renunciation of the world. Right? That's right. He starts that's out right. yes. amidst, you know, crying the glories of God. And then uh, in the second section, he sees the violence of the world, right? right. Not just the Osprey, but also, you know. And, and the, the ferret smile, the hawk's delivered mm. stoop in air, cold eyes, and bodies hooped in steel, forever bent upon the kill, right? Yeah. And so uh, bodies hooped in steel would be soldiers, right? And then um, after that, immediately the next sentence is, and I renounced on the fourth day this fierce and unregenerate clay. So, You're right. Yes. You're right. Don't fuck with me, Jake. <laughs> I wouldn't dream of it. <laughs> We're not supposed to curse. You can curse. I, I have committed to not cursing, but... Um... You can do whatever you want. You are your own sovereign individual. <laughs> Let me present to you, um, I quite like that Hill poem. I think, um, I think it's, um, you know, I think it's powerful. It doesn't convince me uh, so much of religion as it does of, um, it convinces me of the aesthetic need for blood and myth more than anything else if I'm being uh, totally honest with you. Yes. You know, yes. more, more than, let's say, the spiritual need. Um, I mean, there are poems and art that communicates to me the spiritual need for blood and myth. This is not one of them. Right. I, I would agree with you there that that um, that's the starting place. Right. And I think that it's a it's a sort of 
well, it's a aesthetic recognition mm. of of a necessary myth, right? Yeah. Um, but um, that doesn't immediately lead lead you to being a Christian. It just leads you to a sense that the for him, the Christian myth, whether you accept it or not, communicates some true aspect of the world, right? Yeah. In its ascetic world. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this, uh, more than an argument, um, you know, in response or a reply to Hill, I offer you this, Phil. And this is from the preface to a novel called Hard Rain Falling that was published in 1964 by a writer, um, sort of, Let's say a genre crime writer um, named Don Carpenter. And Carpenter was a particular sort of crime writer, maybe in, not in the Williford vein exactly, but in the, how do you put it, like the goodest Williford sort of um, pulp existentialist kind of mold that, um, you know, man, it is very much my thing. And, uh, <laughs> And Pelicanos, who I've never actually read, actually. I've always have been meaning to read Pelicanos, um, but have not. But he's got a really good introduction to this novel. And I'll just say finally, before I read the part I want to from that, which concerns Hill, that I learned about this novel from Jonathan Lethem, who's probably my favorite living author, and who seems to have read 10 years before me every book that <laughs> that I, I end up citing. Um, Lethem really mapped out, you know, a whole sort of uh, nexus of uh, writers on the margins who deserved greater recognition, not just Carpenter, but Malcolm Braley, you know, people like that. Okay, so this is Pelicanos on Carpenter um, in the preface to Hard Rainfalling. Writers write for various reasons, money, fame, pleasure, posterity. Don Carpenter did not receive international acclaim or a great deal of wealth in his lifetime. Maybe he wanted it. It's not for me to say. I like to think that he was in the posterity camp. Certainly his work bears that out. I'm an atheist, said Carpenter in a 1975 interview. I don't see any moral superstructure to the universe at all. I consider my work optimistic in that the people during the period I'm writing about them, are experiencing intense emotion. It is my belief that this is all there is to it. There is nothing beyond this. And yet he found a piece of immortality with this book. Um, indeed he did, because as good as the book itself is, and it's a really good novel, um, the first half is better than the second half, but the whole thing is really good. The prologue to this novel, which is called Incidents in Eastern Oregon, 1929 to 1936, and it's just like a 10-page prologue, is out of the Bible. It is written in stone. It is as good as just about anything in any novel in the 20th century. The first, it's not even 10 pages, it's three to nine, and it's just this parable about the protagonist's parents that sets the story in motion. Listen, if you don't read anything else ever, read the prologue to Hard Rain Falling. That line, though, you know, from, from Carpenter on, I consider my work optimistic 
you know, without a faith in God, in that the people during the period I'm writing about them are experiencing intense emotion. Seems to me a more honest statement of um, sort of meaning imbued in a life without God than 50 humanist platitudes. You know, really, I mean, it seems to me to get closer to it in a sense, not that intensity of feeling is all there is and strips you of the need for anything else, but, you know, it better be avid, right? I mean, it's like O'Hara, you know, at least as alive as the vulgar. Um, It better be, it better be, he's not saying stop there. Right. He's saying it has to be at least as alive as the vulgar. Right. And there's no vulgarity in humanism, you know, (laughs) totally stripped of vulgarity in an obscene way, stripped of vulgarity, but in an obscene way. Can I share something with you? Because I, too, have had the feeling of losing track of Hashem, which is the problem here. I, too, have forgotten how to see him in the world. And when that happens, you think, well, if I can't see him, he isn't there. He's gone. But that's not the case. You just need to remember how to see him. Am I right? I mean, the parking lot here. Not much to see. But if you imagine yourself a visitor, somebody who isn't familiar with these autos and such, somebody still with the capacity for wonder, someone with a fresh perspective. Yeah, I mean, my, this is, and and you're right to pin, pin the hill and maybe my own sentiments to this sort of ascetic quality, right, that we feel is missing and, and that may be the key to a lot of other things, right, if you follow it down that garden path, you know. Um, and maybe it's, uh, you know, it, there's, there's an extent to which it's undoubtedly a matter of taste, right, that, but, um, you know, <laughs> maybe I'm just too, like, bloody-minded, or it's, it's, you know, the past marine influence messing with my head. But I don't think that if your symbolic system doesn't have a bloody beaten body dying in agony at the heart of it, hmm. um, you're not playing the game right. Yeah. I mean, when I said that I was uh, an aesthetic Catholic, if I have to choose, I understand that. But that also seems to me to be... Um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Not problematic. That is not the word I'm looking for. (laughs) Um, You know, it seems to me to be something that requires, that has to be met with uh, emotion and and can't be rationally justified, which is in no way contradicting uh, religious faith, but is to say that is not a proposition, right, that there has to be a bloody body at the heart of a moral system, that is not a proposition that you're going to be able to work out in a, in a logical proof. It makes emotional sense. I, I can follow. Right. And it's powerful. But you, you meet it there or you don't. Yeah. Should we say more stuff? What are we doing now? I think, I think that's good. Yeah, I, I feel like we've reached the, a natural stopping point. I think we cut out the earlier part where I went off on a tangent. So I'll just say again now that in the future, in addition to sort of philosophical manifestos like this one that are, you know, a lot of 
uh, dense kind of talky talk. We'll also be doing, you know, artistic manifestos, Valerie Solanus's scum. Uh, speaking of Frank O'Hara, mm-hmm. his great personism manifest. I think that's the name of it. Wild Billy Childish's yeah. manifesto, the communist manifesto. We've got a lot of good ones. Uh, Vorticist. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a lot of um, statements, documents, um, uh, testaments that people have left to what they thought was most essential. And we want to we go through as many of them as we can. And for now... I turn it over to our sponsor for this podcast, the Angel of Poetry. And the Angel of Poetry says, Sod off. Sod off! <laughs> 